you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And so Atomic Habits is really about giving you a framework for building a better system. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have James Clear, who is the author of Atomic Habits, among any of oh, many other blog posts. I've so I've been reading his blog posts for years and years. And actually, uh, I was speaking at a conference a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, or maybe a year ago. And uh, my friend that was with me at the uh, at the time, he was like, "Hey, uh, look, that's James Clear." And then I was like, oh, that's the guy where I actually like read all his blog posts. And then uh, we talked really briefly, uh, got to meet, and uh, James is here today to talk about many things that I'm interested in. And I think we're going to be able to jump around a lot. So uh, stay tuned. You're going to get some good value from this podcast. James, how is it going? Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat, man. It's, uh, it's good to talk to you again. Yeah. So I guess where should we even start, James? Because you do a lot of different things. You know, you, we talk, you know, uh, weightlifting. And then the next thing is, I, you know, I'm, I'm always referring my team members to your Eisenhower Matrix blog posts. And there's just a lot of stuff that you do, right? So how would you describe James Clear in like a couple sentences? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a variety of interests, uh, which I'd like to keep things, you know, spiced up and um, and varied for me, which is one reason why I'm writing under my name and not like a brand. Like I didn't choose, you know, even though I just wrote this book, Atomic Habits, and have focused a lot on habits, I didn't like make it, you know, betterhabits.com or something like that. But I guess I would say I'm an author and I'm focused on habits, decision making and continuous improvement. And then, uh, you know, on the side, I have these interests in weightlifting and travel photography and things like that. And those are areas where I can experiment and kind of put the ideas into practice. And I think that's sort of a central tenet of my philosophy is that I don't just want to be someone who's sharing ideas. I also want to be practicing them because there's this gap between theory and practice. And I think if you if you don't understand that, then it's hard to share ideas that are actually good and useful and actionable in the real world. And so I, I kind of hold myself accountable in that way. I love it. And, and just to share some numbers, and you can correct me if these are these are off, but uh, you have over 8 million people that read your articles each year. You're featured in Forbes, Time Magazine, CBS, and you have over 400,000 people on your email lists. Is that true? Are, are, have the numbers changed a little bit? Yeah. Uh, well, so thankfully, we've continued to grow since uh, since those numbers were put out. Um, we now do between one and a half to two million visitors a month. Um, so yeah, we'll probably be well over 15 million people this year. Um, 400 40, 450, uh, 450,000, somewhere around there on the email list. And uh, we we actually cut, we were probably well over 500, but we cut 80,000 people just because I wanted to keep the list tighter and, you know, improve the open rate. And I don't really want people on the list if they're not interested in reading the articles. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So anyway, it's been, it's been very, whatever the numbers are, uh, I've been very fortunate uh, to be able to share those ideas with a broad range of people. And, uh, it's made the work better too, because I get all kinds of feedback from the readers on, Hey, you forgot this piece of research or have you read this book yet? And, uh, I love that. That's, you know, I thrive off that feedback and I, I consider, 
everything I write is one is kind of a reminder to myself. Like it sounds like I'm writing it to the wider world, but really I'm just trying to keep myself on track. And two, um, I, I want to treat these ideas like a scientist, you know, like, and a scientist revise, revises and updates their ideas as new information and evidence becomes available. So I have no, I'm not like tied to, Hey, I have this idea and it has to be like this. Um, so I, I'm kind of continually tweaking and updating the articles and trying to figure out a better way to phrase things. Right. And how long have you been writing for, I guess the, the James Clear blog? So jamesclear.com was started on November 12th, 2012. That was the first article. And then I said, I'm going to write a new article every Monday and Thursday. And I did that for the first three years. And it was really that writing habit of twice a week that kind of changed the trajectory of, of the business and really of my work. That was, that was the thing that kind of set me on this path that I'm currently on. Great. And when you, when you started out, I mean, cause we've had a, there's a host of people that have been able to hit incredible numbers with their, their blog. I mean, was it just, was it just mostly the habit of the Monday through Thursday? I mean, did you, how are you promoting it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, whenever I answer a question like this, I put things into three categories. So the first category is content and that is the least sexy, but probably the most important of the, the three. And my answer that I just gave of writing two articles a week yeah, that made like 95% of the difference. You know, like if people, if you want to get in shape, people do all kinds of things. They buy running shoes or knee sleeves or, uh, protein powders and all this type of stuff. And that's like the last 2% of difference. The real thing is like, do you not miss a workout for two years? And I would say that writing is similar in that sense. Like I tried my very best to write a good article twice a week. And then I did that for three years and that ended up paying huge dividends. The second category is design and conversion. And I kind of operate on a similar rule of thumb. I think maybe Noah Kagan was the one who told me this, but it was sort of like this 2% rule where total new subscribers over total traffic for the month. And if you are converting at least 2% of your traffic, then that's fine. Conversion is not a bottleneck for you. You need to focus on driving more traffic. If you're under 2%, then you need to improve your conversion and design a little bit. And of course that depends, you know, that's going to vary depending on what the site is and the purpose of it and the content and so on. Um, for me, we actually target 3% as our number that we shoot for most months. And as the traffic is increased, that becomes harder and harder to maintain. You know, like we used to be before when I was maybe at 500,000 visits a month, maybe we could hit 4%. But now, you know, if you get 2 million a month, then 2.8 is, is pretty good. So it just, it just varies as time goes on. But uh, I think that's a decent rule of thumb. Yeah. And and then the uh, and that's mostly uh, for me at least uh, that's mostly about simplicity. So I have tried to just keep one call to action per page, and almost always for me it's joining the email list because once you're on the email list, then we have a lot of options uh, for whether we want to share a product with you or share a new article or a book or whatever. And then the second thing is just it's just copywriting. I mean, for me, my site is very minimal. It's mostly just white with black text, and so copy is the design. And so writing something compelling or having a really good title, that's, that's the thing that makes the biggest impact there for us. And then the third category is, uh, what I guess I would call partnerships is, is traffic is really what it is. But for us, social and SEO have been important, but not, I, I have friends who they'll get like 40% of their traffic from Facebook, but it's not like that for us. We get maybe 20% of our traffic from social in total. And then Facebook is the largest chunk of that. Social does drive a fair bit of traffic for us, or sorry, search does drive a fair bit of traffic for us, but that has been a very slow burn and it almost, you can almost map it linearly with the number of articles I've written and the amount of traffic we get from Google. So it's just like, just keep writing more articles and you'll, you'll start ranking for more things. And then the final piece of that though, and the one that's a little more unique to me are partnerships. So 
I've been able to partner with, you know, Time, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Fast Company, uh, whatever, a bunch of these different outlets. And uh, they will syndicate or republish some of the articles I write. And the great thing about that is we don't get as much traffic, raw traffic from them, but people convert at a much higher rate. Because if they if they just spent five minutes reading an article on Time, that I don't really need to convince them to browse the site and see if they like it. They, they already like it. They would have checked out and stopped reading the article and not gotten to the end. So at the end of the article, I just link straight to the newsletter page. So it's just like jamesclear.com slash newsletter and just ask them to sign up right then. And um, so anyway, those three buckets, content, design, traffic, uh, that's usually how I break it up. Cool. I love it. And I want to start, I want to start to talk about, I mean, some of the, I mean, even that writing habit itself, I mean, you have this book atomic habit. So I want to jump into that in a, in a little bit. Now, you know, actually one thing that, that comes to mind, uh, I had a friend the, the other a couple of weeks ago, we we're, we're at this, uh, doing a little mastermind and, you know, he was like, you know, Eric, we added this thing to our site and then our conversion rate now is 16%. And as myself uh, and another friend were like, no way. Um, and it's, you know, those, those wheeling scrolling, the, the scrolling wheelie uh, opt-in things. It's like a, almost like a contest. Sort of. What do you, what's this one look like? God, I, it's like a, it's like you're doing Wheel of Fortune almost. You're spinning it to like win like a prize or something like that, right? It seems really gimmicky. Okay, right. And then he's like, "Yeah, we're converting at sixteen percent." So we literally just added it this morning, and our conversion rate jumped from like like I think one point five to three point five percent. So I just wanted to share that, um, and and hopefully that doesn't become too too I don't know diluted soon. But anyway, just FYI, it's called Wheelio. All right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so going back to okay, so your your blog, you have a ton of traffic. Uh, it's converting well to to your newsletter. I guess you know because we talk a lot about business on this podcast. How are you monetizing that traffic? How do you make money? Yeah, we have maybe five, four or five different revenue streams. So you know, I've mentioned the book a couple times. So I got an advance. I've, I'm traditionally publishing the book with Penguin Random House. If you were to self publish, of course, then you've got the option of you know just doing Create Space or something on demand and making money through that. So the book is one revenue stream. The second one that we have is a course called the Habits Academy, and that's sort of my premier training platform for uh, individuals and organizations that are looking to better build better habits in life and in work. So if you've, you know, if you have a company and you're looking to build better habits across your team, or you want uh, more productive habits uh, across the team, then that would be like where I would direct people. And that course we've had, I don't know, maybe almost ten thousand people go through it. I don't know if we've quite crossed ten thousand yet, but we will at some point soon. And then we, you know, I have affiliate stuff. Like I don't do affiliate deals for like online courses or anything. It's just easier to say no to all of that because I'm not really interested in getting into that world. But like Amazon, if I, you know, a lot of the articles I write are heavily research backed or reference some book. And so if I mention the book in the citations or in the article, I'll link to, uh, to it, uh, with the Amazon affiliate link. So, you know, that's like 80 cents per book or something. But if you're getting millions of people each month, um, then it can, that can add up. Um, and then, uh, we've experimented with ads and sponsorships. I, I feel like the verdict is still out for me on that. I really hate ads from a user experience and I've had an incredibly minimalist website for my entire career. So it conflicts with me on that front. I like the idea that everybody contributes a little bit to the site. So if you come to the site and you read the articles and you get value from it, you don't need to buy something. You can just browse and we'll have an ad on the side or something and that'll, you know, you'll pitch in your little piece through that. So I like that part of it, but I don't like the experience part. So we're still messing or playing with that. And then the last area are uh, speaking events and I guess some workshops and trainings, but I don't really, I'm not really interested in being a corporate trainer, but I get a fair number of companies that will 
ask me to come speak or to deliver some kind of training. So I just keep raising my price until uh, people say no. <laughs> and uh, I usually do about one a month. I think my ideal number would be maybe like eight per year, um, somewhere around there. So we'll see. Maybe the book might help with that. Actually, I may be able to do yeah. get more inbound leads and raise the rate and just kind of stay around that like eight to 10 number. But those are the, those are the primary revenue areas. Could you, could you share what you raise it up to? Like, what did you start at for speaking and what did you raise it to? Like, what is it at now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's changed a lot over the years. I mean, you know, and hopefully this will continue to be a moving target, but the very first speaking event I did, I did it for $500. And then the very next one that I did, I just raised it to a thousand because I realized nobody cares about with those numbers, generally speaking, if you're hiring a speaker. And I would say even now, if I was starting now, uh, anything between like one and 3000 is a totally reasonable place to start. Like nobody's going to blink at that, even if you don't have much experience. If they're paying for speakers, there are plenty of events that just don't pay. So there's, you know, and again, that's another thing. Like I, time is precious and I'm not interested in doing a bunch of events just to like, I think my time would be better spent writing articles than giving speeches. But anyway, so after I got to that, uh, $3,000 mark, I started raising it every three paid events. So once I got three at 3000, then I went to three at, I think I did five after that. And then I did six. So I did three at five, three at six, then three at seven, five, then three at 10. And then now I've been anywhere between the 10 to 20 range for a while and have been continually like steadily increasing every three or five events or so. Love it. There you go. There's your framework, guys. If you want to, if you want to speak guys and gals. Uh, so around the business. Okay. So you, you have all these different um, things that you're doing. So you got the, the, the books, you have the speaking gigs. What kind of numbers can you share around the business? You know, could be growth rates. Uh, you talked about customers a little bit, revenues, anything that you're comfortable sharing? Uh, sure. Well, I guess the, the most important thing for me is, is the business moving like up and to the right? Is the trajectory uh, on a positive spin? And what I find is that the most interesting thing for my business in particular is how heavily things are tied to writing new articles. If I write a new articles each week, everything else, like literally everything goes up. Speaking requests go up, course sales go up, interest in the book goes up, more traffic and more affiliate revenue. Like it's basically all tied to whether or not I'm writing new articles and good articles, which is kind of fascinating to see because we've done various things for different products and none of them move the needle as much as just writing articles. Like we've done a variety of Facebook ads for, uh, for the course or for, um, uh, some stuff for like even getting leads. You know, we've run a couple, uh, ads for getting people on the newsletter and things like that. And, uh, none of the paid strategies that we've used have been anywhere near as effective as the organic stuff. So that's kind of a, I don't know how, uh, how useful that is for other businesses, but I feel like that's kind of an interesting little insight into mine. Growth rates. So, uh, the email list growth rate, for example, when I started, uh, the first year I went from zero to 34,000 subscribers. The second year I went from 34 to hundred. Then we, I think we hit 225 at the end of the third year. Then we were somewhere around 400 at the end of the fourth year. And now we're in our fifth year and we are probably, if I, if we hadn't cut people, we'd probably be around five, I don't know, 520, 550, somewhere in there, but we cut 80,000. So we're around like 440 or 450. So that, I don't know that's been kind of interesting to see. And I think that we, we're going to kind of go through like an S curve with that. So like it started and we were like low and slow and then we hit that hockey stick and we grew really fast. And then once you get up above, say, I really think above like maybe 600,000 subscribers, it's really hard to grow organically 
uh, really, it's probably just hard to grow in general unless you're like Instagram or something. Uh, beyond that, I don't really know many bloggers who have organic lists of over, say, like 800,000 or so, because your churn, if you're sending out emails consistently, you're sending emails every week or so, um, and you have an unsubscribe rate, even if it's a decent one of 0.5% or 1% or something like that, uh, you just need to be adding, you know, you got to be adding like 5,000 people a day to to net more than that at the end of each week. So your your rate has to be really high. And right now we add between a thousand and 2000 people a day. We've had, we've had some crazy days. Like I did an interview on uh, CBS and I think we added 11,000 people that day. So that was, that was also an interesting insight because a lot of times, especially entrepreneurs and tech entrepreneurs, many of my friends like to dump on mainstream media and be like, newspapers are dying. Nobody watches TV shows anymore. Like whatever. Um, it's just Netflix and uh, YouTube and stuff. But that was a four minute segment that we did on the CBS morning show. And it, like basically 10 X our daily growth rate on email. So I don't know. There's still a lot of people out there. are A lot of eyeballs on mainstream TV for sure. Great. You know, I, I mean, I, I do want to get into, um, let's, let's talk about atomic habits. And I think it, maybe it, it would, it would circle back into like your writing habits too. And then we can dive a little deeper there. So first and foremost, what is atomic habits and what, what book number is this for you? Sure. So this is actually my first full-length uh, traditionally published book. So really excited about that. Atomic Habits is – I chose the word atomic for three reasons. The first is that uh, atomic can mean tiny or small. And that's one of my central uh, beliefs is that habits should be easy to do. Um, and that makes it much more likely that you'll stick to them in the long term. The second meaning of atomic is that an atom is the fundamental unit of a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And in a sense, I think we could say that habits are kind of like the atoms of our lives. They're like the fundamental units. They're these little patterns and behaviors that you repeat each day. And when you put them all together, you end up with whatever results that you get. I mean, in many ways, you're your results in life are just a lagging measure of your habits. Like your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your The amount of clutter in your office or in your room is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. The amount of money in your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. So we, we often talk about outcomes. We act like the results are the thing that matter. But if you just focus on the results, a lot of time you're treating a symptom without addressing the cause. The habits are the cause behind it. So – uh, and then the third reason that I chose the word atomic is because it can also mean the source of immense energy or power. And I think that that kind of encapsulates the the arc of the book, which is that if you build these very small habits and you accumulate them into a larger system and kind of add these fundamental units together, then you can end up with really remarkable results and some some powerful outcomes in the long run. And uh, the phrase that I think encapsulates kind of my my philosophy is that you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And so Atomic Habits is really about giving you a framework for building a better system. I love it. Okay. So I, I guess what are some examples uh, inside of it? Because I, I love, I mean, my, my thinking is, you know, everything that happens that's bad inside of a business is mostly like a systems or a process issue. So what, I guess, what are some, are, are you sharing habits inside of the, the book? And if so, like, what are some ones that you can maybe call out? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is kind of built around what I call the four laws of behavior change. And you can think of it kind of like a toolbox or a toolkit. And you can choose which tools to, to apply based on the situation you're facing, whether it's your personal life or in the office or whatever. And each law of behavior change is sort of like a lever. And when the levers are in the right places, habits are easy to build. And when they're in the wrong places, they're really hard to build. 
And throughout the book, I try to give specific examples of uh, habits, whether it's like health and fitness, uh, dieting, or whether it's meditation and stress reduction, or uh, increasing productivity, relationship building. Habits are everywhere. I mean, they, they infiltrate every aspect of our lives. And uh, the purpose of those four laws is to sort of break it out into an understandable and digestible format so that you can think about where is the appropriate point to apply pressure to this, uh, to this particular situation. So let me give you two examples. So the first example, I was looking to build uh, a flossing habit. You know, for many years I had brushed my teeth twice a day, but I wouldn't floss consistently. And you can do this for pretty much any behavior. And I'll give you a business example in a second. But you can map out essentially the chain of behaviors associated with a particular task. So for flossing, I would say, all right, what needs to happen? Okay, I need to like open up the drawer and take out the floss and then wrap around my fingers and then floss my teeth and throw it out and so on. And I realized there were a couple points of friction. The first one was the floss was hidden away in this drawer. I wouldn't see it all the time, so I just wouldn't remember to do it. The second one, and sounds kind of silly, but I didn't really like the feeling of wrapping floss around my fingers. It was like uncomfortable. And so... I bought some pre-made flossers and a little bowl and I put them in the bowl and put it right next to my toothbrush so that they were obvious and I removed that point of friction of wrapping it around my, my fingers. So now I just brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick the floss up and then floss and I'm done. And that little change of environment design of kind of making it more obvious and reducing the friction associated with the task, that's all I really needed to do. Now I floss my teeth without even thinking about it. I've been doing it for years. So that's one personal example. A business example, uh, you can imagine when ride-sharing services like Uber or Lyft started, you could just take whatever uh, problem you're trying to solve and then map out the chain of behaviors that a customer goes through. So you could say, all right, what needs to happen to get across town? You need to call a taxi company, then you need to like wait outside, you need to um, get in the car, put your stuff in the car if you have like a bag or anything. Go across town, pay for it, uh, you know, exchange the money, put the money in your wallet, get out, and then go on your way. And you can think about like, all right, what are all the points of friction that someone experiences throughout that chain of behaviors? And you could realize that say, okay, maybe one point of friction is people have to go out on the curb and like flag a taxi down or wait for it outside. Well, what if it's raining like that? Nobody wants to do that. So now you're like, okay, well, what if we build an app and people could call it straight from the app and they don't have to be outside? Uh, okay, so that resolves one point of friction there. Then later in the process, you're getting out of the car. Well, then you have to spend a minute or two paying for it. You either hand them your credit card or you take money out and then you have to exchange that. What if, because we already have this app on their phone, we could load a credit card and now they don't have to have that point of friction and so on. And you can do this in ways that people often don't even realize. You don't even think about like Instagram recently. They, if you put a little album up and you have two or three photos, now, if you scroll through and see the first photo and then keep scrolling, if you go back through again, Instagram will automatically move you to the second photo. So now they're removing the friction of you even swiping your thumb. And so much of the task of uh, these technology companies and building better businesses is about finding, reducing the friction associated with solving the same problem. The problems that people are facing are not that different than we faced for our entire existence. People still want to travel and get across town just like they did when they had a horse or when they have a taxi or when they're in an Uber. But one of them is the more frictionless way to do it. And whatever the next company is that comes along is going to find a similar way to reduce the amount of friction associated with those behaviors. And you can take that philosophy and apply it to building your own habits in your personal life, like flossing or building a better business. Love it. I want to come back to this in a second too, but uh, talking about habits more, this is more so related on, I guess, the, the, the business side. So what are your habits around 
content creation, so blogging, right? You mentioned you did you did, you did it Mondays and Thursdays, but I mean, what other kind of criteria do you have? What what else is built into this habit? I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think I'll mention two things. So the first one is what I call a decisive moment. So like for example, every night at around. Um, 5.15, my wife gets home and there's this decisive moment where either we change into our workout clothes and we go to the gym and get a workout in, or we sit on the couch and watch the office and order takeout or whatever. And it's really about what happens in that first two minutes of like whether we change into our workout clothes or not that determines the next like hour. You know, if we change our workout clothes, everything else is already decided. We're going to drive to the gym. I'll get under the bar. I'll do the workout. It's all done. With writing, there's a similar moment like that for me. There's a decisive moment each morning where either I sit down and I open up Evernote and I start writing my next article or I go to ESPN and check the latest sports news and like spend the next 45 minutes doing that. And so I think for many creative processes, it's not, you know, a habit, if we're being technical about it, a habit is an automatic behavior or a behavior that you can do more or less without thinking. Well, writing is about the most effortful habit you can do. Like you're going to be thinking, um, it requires effort. So it's not, you're never going to do it on autopilot, but you can automate the beginning of it. And that's, uh, I think that's the key for a lot of rituals and why they're useful is that if you have a ritual to initiate a task, then you find it's kind of like the entrance ramp to a highway. You find yourself like sliding on easily. And then all of a sudden you're speeding like 60 miles an hour in the right direction rather than the wrong one. So for me, my little ritual is I wake up, I get a glass, I, I shower first. Showers like coffee for me. I don't drink coffee. I don't have a, I don't have a good reason for that, but I, I don't. So I shower, I get dressed and then I grab a glass of water, go to my office, I have a home office and, um, sit down and then open up Evernote. And that's like, that's the ritual. I try to do that on autopilot and then everything else kind of happens naturally after that. So that's the first piece. And then the second thing is I also try to take these little actions, which in the book, I call this priming the environment. And you can do, you can prime your environment many ways. You can do it physically uh, and have like the, the floss example or, you know, many other, there are many other examples in the book, but, but you can also prime it digitally. So I try to prime my digital writing environment by having like the seeds of an idea ready for me. So I'm not staring at a blank page. If I have something to work from, then that's, even if it's just one sentence, it's much easier for me to get into the task. So in Evernote, I have this folder that is essentially just a holding ground for ideas. So like if you mentioned something, you know, uh, during this conversation and it sparks an idea for me, we'll get done and I'll just dump that into Evernote. And it could be a title, it could be a sentence. It, sometimes I'll just riff on it for a little while and it turns into two or three paragraphs. And then every now and then, like when I sit down at the beginning of a day, I'll go through that whole list and see if I have two or three or five notes that are related to each other and start to collect them into like a bigger draft. And that's when an article starts to take shape a little bit. And then, then I actually have something to work from and I'll just write from there. Love it. Great. It's actually, you know what? I mean, I, I want to also like, so I, I love the writing habit. I mean, what, what are like your other kind of daily habits? Can you elaborate a little more? Because people love that stuff. Yeah, sure. So I think that because I talk and write about habits a lot, I feel like people might be surprised at how unstructured I am. But I generally put habits into two categories. So the first category are things like flossing or tying your shoes or unplugging the toaster after each time you use it. They're just like these kind of fundamental habits that you, once you form them, you don't really need to think about them anymore. Like I don't need a process of continuous improvement for tying my shoes. Good enough is good enough with that stuff. So that's, that's my first category of habits. And for those, most of the time, I just try to prime the environment to make those easier. And then like once they're automated, I don't think about them anymore. Then there's another category though, where I really do care about getting better and kind of like endlessly refining. 
those areas. And for me, there's probably like three areas. There's writing, there's weightlifting, and there's photography. Like those are kind of the three that I really want to hone in on. And for those, uh, I'm much more interested in doing the, the environment design stuff that I do for the other habits, but then also I need a process for like reflection review. And that usually starts with measurement. So that's probably the first thing that's different for me about the big habits, uh, than my small ones. So I have my writing habit that we just talked about. I train in the gym four or five days a week. And whenever I do that, I record every set and every rep so that I have something to go back on and, and look back at like what I do last week and so on. Occasionally for some of those habits, these really important habits, I will also hire someone, a coach or somebody to help me uh, improve there. So like right now I'm working with this really great powerlifting coach and he's like coming up with my programming and training. And then I also have longer term review periods where I'll go back and look at stuff. So at the end of each year, I do an annual review and that review answers three questions. What went well this year? What didn't go so well this year? And then what am I working on next or where am I going? And that's a chance for me to revisit this measurement and tracking that I was doing. So I look at how many articles I wrote in total, uh, how many people visited the website, how many new email subscribers, all that stuff. I look at how many workouts I did and then how many workouts I did each month and then what my average was uh, per month compared to the year before. And then I also look at how many new places I traveled because travel and photography are kind of linked for me and how many states I went to and how many countries I went to. So that's a chance for me to reflect a little bit on those things and then think, does something need to change uh, for next year? And then six months later in the summer, I conduct what I call an integrity report and that also answers three questions. The first one is, what are my core values and principles? Like, what do, what do I say are important to me? Second one is, how have I lived by those? So kind of a chance to pat myself on the back. And then the third one is the important one, which is, how, how did I not live by those values? Or where did I make, like, exceptions over the last year? And I think that's particularly important for, in the book, I call this identity-based habits. But essentially, you want your habits to be aligned with the type of person that you want to become. Not, it's not just about the results. It's not just about writing a certain number of articles or lifting a certain amount of weight in the gym or getting to a certain net revenue number. I'm also like interested in, you know, am I becoming the person that I, that I want to be? And the thing about integrity is that everybody thinks they have it. It's, it's no, you're not going to talk to anybody who thinks they're not a person of integrity. And the way that you get off track with that is not usually by making one grave mistake, but by making a bunch of like just this once exceptions. And so the integrity report is a chance for me to like counteract that a little bit and maybe pull myself back to center and be like, Hey, you said this was one of your values, but you did something different the last year. So you need to, you know, get back on course. So I think, um, for those areas that I actually do care about that second category of habits where I do care about endlessly refining and continuously improving, um, reflection and review is kind of the, the main difference between those and the other small ones. Love it. And I have to assume that the, some of the things you're just talking about, like the integrity audit uh, or, or integrity report, right? right. Uh, you, you probably had this written on your blog somewhere. Yes. So uh, if you go to jamesclear.com slash annual dash review, you can see the annual reviews. And if you go to jamesclear.com slash integrity, you can see the integrity reports. There you go. Great. We'll drop that in the show notes as well. So we're working towards wrapping up here, but I, I you know, literally before we started, you, you were talking about systems design, decision making and mental models. Can you describe, um, maybe we'll start with systems design first. Sure. So the idea, I'll, I'll just retell the thought experiment I was sharing with you. So the idea that I was having was that 
if you took take whatever dictator you want, pick someone you know someone terrible from history, and you put them into some role in the United States government, you made them Secretary of State or something, they it would be the same person, but they would not be able to operate in the same way. The system would not allow it. They would be you know ousted from office or in front of a judicial hearing or arrested and put in prison, um, voted out of office. Something would happen. The system would prevent it. And so. In a sense, uh, and actually I would think we just say it's definitely true that the Constitution, the creation of the Constitution, the creation of the, de- the Declaration of Independence, the creation of democracy, that was a more important decision the way you designed the system than who is in the role at any particular time, uh, who is the president or who is the secretary of state or whatever. And that same thing is true. Uh, for designing not just nations, but all kinds of things. Uh, so if you think about, you know, cryptocurrency, the launch of Bitcoin created an entirely new system, a new kind of market, so to speak, and a new set of incentives that came with that market. And as a result, uh, different kinds of behaviors. And so I'm not, I don't have like a, a clear answer to this right now, but I think that a lot of the time you'll hear people say things like incentives are very important. And if you get the right incentives and you get the right behavior, if you understand the incentives, you understand the behavior. But I don't know that most people understand what they're what they mean when they think they're talking about incentives. Uh, humans have these kind of like primal drives, these instincts, I guess we could call it, that we're born with. You know, the desire to stay safe, the desire to procreate, the desire to find food and water, the desire for you know whatever else. There's uh, fear, and if you create a system that aligns with one of those primal drives in the right way, then people are naturally incentivized to uh, work for the system. And uh, I think there's there's definitely like a deeper thread to pull there about systems design and coming up with a system that gets people to effectively work for it. You know, so if you think about it, the creation of Google as a search engine, that was the creation of a system and you get all sorts of behavior thanks to that system. So you created the system. Uh, it was good at finding websites. So then more and more people would visit it and use the service. Then because it was driving so much traffic, you have this whole like uh, industry that was spawned of SEO and like mastering SEO and all that stuff. That all is like all those people are effectively like working, so to speak, for that system that was created. And the behaviors that you're getting are just a result of how the system was designed. So I don't know. There's I feel like there are some interesting things to explore there. That's something I'm looking forward to writing more about in the future. I'm waiting for uh, Atomic Systems Design to come out. <laughs> I'll have to come up with a different title, but I like the idea. <laughs> cool. So, uh, so can you talk a little bit about kind of uh, a quick one-on-one for mental models and decision-making? Yes. So I think that decision-making and habits pair really nicely together. So your decisions set the trajectory that is available to you. Um, so imagine you want to become an entrepreneur and you can decide what kind of business you want to start. You could decide to, say, open like a local pizza parlor, or you could decide to start like a new email marketing service or some software company or something like that. And it's really that initial decision that determines what the trajectory of your future looks like, you know, how steep that growth curve could be or how much you can scale and so on. So you can kind of like imagine it like plotting out a potential history ahead of you based on that initial decision. But your habits, your habits are what determine how far you walk along that potential path. So it's quite possible that you could open the local pizza parlor, and if you had really killer habits, you could end up with a much better, more successful business uh, because you're executing that on that idea and realizing that potential at a higher degree than someone who had a good idea for a tech company but didn't have the habits to back it up. 
And so I like to think about those two as kind of like working in concert with each other. And of course, what we want is to make great decisions and to have great habits. And I think that uh, that mental models are a good way to do that. I don't know the only way, but I like thinking about them just as like a frame or a lens for viewing the world. And if you can increase the number of lenses that you have to look at things, it's like you it's kind of like with each mental model, you get to put on a different pair of glasses, you know, like, okay, let's look at this problem through the rose color glasses and then through the blue tinted ones, then through the yellow ones and so on. And um, each time maybe you pick up on different aspects of the situation and start to get a fuller picture of what you're dealing with and what choice you should make. 100%. And do you think your travels have helped with that? Yes. I mean, they definitely have. There's, you know, that, I mean, that's a very standard thing that people will talk through is like, yeah, travel broadened my perspective and opened my eyes to things. And I, I think that's certainly true. But you can travel in many different ways, you know, I mean, and I, I've done this just in my own life. I mean, early on, I didn't have any money. So I was staying in hostels and buying cheap flights and all that stuff. And, you know, and now I'll stay in nicer places. And it just it changes how how you view uh, the, the experience of travel. So I think you need to be careful to have travel can provide uh, really powerful shifts in perspective, but you need to have good entry points into the culture. So for me, my, my two primary entry, one is photography is sort of like a reason that gets me on the road and going to so I can see whatever beauty the country has to offer or, you know, uh, whatever interesting things they have. Cause I'm like trying to get a shot of that. But the other entry point that's just as critical for me is food. And I often learn more about using food as an entry point into culture, uh, uh, than I do with photography because with photography, I kind of like can see and research some of the similar photos that I like and you know, like get an idea a little bit in my head before I go. But with food, I don't know what it's like until I get there. And, you know, if you stumble into an interesting place uh, on the street, like I, my friend John and I went to Vietnam and one of my favorite meals, there was just some random place we walked in uh, while we were there. And we were the only, not only were we the only white people there, we were just the only people in there aside from the family that was making food. Um, but it was great. It was like, we got to feel, um, I really got like a closer sense of the culture while I was there. And I think you need, uh, I think you need some good entry points to learn those things. That's great. It's perfect. Yeah, I think we could go all day about this stuff, but I want to be respectful of your time. So the question is, what is one new tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value? So it could be like a Peloton bike or it could be like a on Evernote. Mm, good question. I think probably the tool that I've used the most in the last year is this. It sounds simple, but it's a notebook. And uh, I created like a manual habit tracker on it. And just the act of like recording, I don't think, uh, this is something I also write in the book. I don't think you should track most habits. Um, I don't think it's necessary for a lot of them, but for the important ones, there's kind of this, this is also this, actually this lesson applies very well to business and building better habits in business, which is that the experience, the ending of any experience, if you want the customer to repeat it, or if you want yourself to repeat the habit, the ending needs to be satisfying. There needs to be some kind of positive emotional signal that tells your brain, Hey, you should do this again. And in many cases, when you're building habits, there's kind of this gap between the action that you take today and getting the results. You know, like you go to the gym, the reward for going to the gym for a week isn't really a whole lot. Like your body basically looks the same in the mirror, the weight, the scale hasn't changed that much. Like you don't really see the results yet. So you need something to, to enjoy in the moment to get you to keep showing up again the next day or the next week. And habit tracking provides one way to do that. It kind of takes the invisible, the fact that you showed up at the gym and like, develop the identity of someone who doesn't miss workouts and makes it visible. It makes it like, Oh, I can see the X's on the calendar or I can see the, you know, how many times I've done this in the last week. And, um, so that little instant bit of satisfaction helps a lot. 
in a business context, there are all sorts of examples of products that do this. So, you know, one of the common examples, I think Duhigg mentions it in Power of Habit, toothpaste, uh, mint toothpaste, the mint flavor, you don't need mint for toothpaste to work. It doesn't make toothpaste more effective. It just makes it more satisfying and gives you this clean mouth feel so you have a reason to do it again in the future. I think it was Ford that recently has added this fake guttural roar to their trucks. It's like an, <laughs> it's like playing a sound almost in addition to stepping on the accelerator again, to make the satisfaction more enjoyable, to give you uh, additional feedback with that experience. And so you can think about that when it comes to building a business, every experience your customer goes through and also your employees should have, if it's important, it should have some kind of positive emotional signal, especially immediately after the behavior. And this is in the book, I refer to this as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that get immediately rewarded, get repeated behaviors that get immediately punished, get avoided. And so having some kind of a satisfactory or satis uh, satisfying experience at the ending of each action is the thing that will give you a reason to repeat it again in the future. And uh, my habit tracking notebook has been one way that I've done that in my own life. I love it. Yeah, I used to use an app for it, but it, it, it kind of fell off. So I think a physical one might might do better. So I might try that. Um, James, final question for you. What is one must read book you'd recommend to the audience aside from Atomic Habits? Yeah, well, I'll give you two and you can read them both in like under an hour or two. So uh, you can knock them both out in an afternoon. Um, the first one is called Manual for Living by Epictetus. So he's one of the Stoic philosophers. In my opinion, it's the most accessible of the Stoic books and uh, just really good reminders. I mean, you know, the book's been around for 2000 years, so it's going to probably going to be around for another thousand. It's going to apply to human behavior uh, all the time. Three dollars and 90 cents on Audible. Three dollars and 90 cents on Audible just for everyone to know basically free. <laughs> See, you're going to have a hard time spending four bucks that are going to be more useful than that. And the second one is called The Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant. So they're a husband-wife combo. They were historians for like 60 years, and they wrote this massive compendium of basically everything that happened in history. It was like 15 volumes and thousands of pages. And then after they finished that project, they said, what are the core themes that repeat themselves throughout history? What are the things that seem to show up in humans regardless of time or place? And uh, they wrote this little 100-page book called The Lessons of History that is a great insight into human behavior and how it works and what we can learn from, from all that. Cool. I'm just literally adding them to my Audible right now. <laughs> It'll be worth your time. You'll enjoy them both. I think actually the audiobook of Lessons of History has uh, some like interviews with the authors as well. That is like part of it. So maybe it'll take you two hours. So. Oh, it's Lessons of History. I put the Lessons of the Living. <laughs> lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant. Cool, man. James, thanks so much for those two recommendations and, and all the value you've added today. So what's the best way for people to find you online? Sure. Well, you can see my work and writing at jamesclear.com and, uh, you know, feel free to poke around, check out articles. I have them organized in different categories so you can see what interests you. And then, uh, if you're interested in learning more about habits and how to build a system to be more effective, uh, feel free to check out atomic habits and that is at atomichabits.com. Wonderful. James, thanks again for doing this. You bet. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.